on the Legal Economic Nexus podcast, Michigan State University institutional economists Eric Scorzoni and Sarah Klammer explore the work of heterodox and institutional economists. Institutional approaches to economics have a long history going back over a century, but are becoming even more prevalent since the trauma of the Great Recession, global financial crisis, and now the COVID-19 pandemic. We will be interviewing current thinkers from the fields of economics and the law to gain insights into important new research, approaches, and tools to understand the economy. Welcome to the Legal Economic Nexus podcast with your hosts, Eric Scorsoni and Sarah Klammer from the campus of Michigan State University, November 2021. And today we have a special guest, Emily Hovrat a PhD candidate at Colorado State University's Department of Economics. Welcome, Emily. So, Sarah, we'll get us started. Yeah, this should be pretty casual today. We're interested in kind of finding out what draws new scholars to institutional economics. So can you tell us about how you got started and what interested you about IE? Yeah, so kind of the reason that I got into economics in the first place was sort of through institutional economics. It wasn't really described in that way. But so I took AP economics my senior year of high school, which was, you know, a super like mainstream neoclassical like principles class. At the time I was like, well, you know, this is kind of interesting. I don't think I'll go any further with it. And then my freshman year of undergrad, I enrolled in a first year seminar class on kind of the causes of the Great Recession and the political movements that arose from it. So looking at the Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street kind of on the opposite ends of that. And so that's really what kind of piqued my interest in economics going forward, just the way that it interacts with society, culture, politics, all of that kind of stuff. And so looking at the economy through the lens of the financial crisis was kind of the first time I'd encountered this idea that institutions have a major part to play in the economy. And that was a lot more palatable to me than this mainstream perspective that the economy should just kind of exist in a vacuum without any outside influences. It seemed very unrealistic to me and getting this kind of glimpse into a more institutional perspective, even if I didn't have that name for it yet, is what got me into it and made me realize it was maybe a good fit for me. Right, yeah. So actually, the key finding of your senior thesis from Worcester highlighted the difficulty of creating a quantitative measure Mm -hmm. of sexual identity, and all that was tied into some of that cultural stuff you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Was that research kind of influenced by these interests, or did you have an advisor who sort of helped push you along this way? Had you read certain things that interested you? Yeah. Yeah. So in undergrad, I double majored in economics and gender studies. And so it started out as a project on LGBTQ people and food insecurity. So I had like all this theory and literature that suggested that queer people were more likely to be food insecure than heterosexual people. But when I did my data analysis, my results were significant in the opposite direction. So I think that was, you know, at least in part due to just the data itself. Like I didn't have data that 
looked at both sexual identity and food security. So I needed to code my own proxy variable for queerness, but that really only works if you have a partner. That's really the only way you can see that from this data. And so this obviously leaves out single queer people. It also leaves out people who maybe they've listed their partner as their roommate instead. And so this kind of set me down this rabbit hole on the politics of data collection and self-identity. Like sexual identity is something that people can hide from surveyors if they would like to. So in a country, you know, where there are no federal legal protections on the basis of sexual identity, then queer people have a strong incentive to do so for their own protection, which implies that the most privileged queer people are the ones who are more likely to answer honestly. So you get this really complex and fascinating question of kind of where data comes from and how it can easily be biased based on the institutions. So if the census doesn't have a question about sexual identity, for example, then that data doesn't get recorded unless you're partnered and unless someone really goes looking for it, like I did. (laughs) The Um, advisor wasn't necessarily interested in that institutional piece per se. That was more something you brought mm -hmm. in. Yeah, it was kind of, I guess, a side effect, I guess. (laughs) I'm just curious how you Um, got to that. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my advisor, the gender studies advisor, because I had the two, like she kind of suggested to kind of think more about, you know, where that data comes from, which, you know, is a fair point. And I think that that's something that is really important if you're doing this kind of micro data analysis, you know, like we know these questions of identity are politically fraught too. Like there was the whole controversy leading up to the 2020 census about a citizenship question and how there was concern that if, there's a question about citizenship, then that will, first of all, it could harp the safety of people for whom are undocumented, or there's a concern that they just wouldn't fill out the census at all, which would then lead to a systematic undercounting of this population. You know, it kind of made me a big nerd about data collection and survey methods, which definitely influenced and was kind of a result of my interest in institutional economics. Like if we ignore these institutions that impact people's decision to answer these questions, to identify themselves in a way, then we can't, you know, collect this extremely important data. This is needed, but then that data is needed to change these institutions, you know, kind of this idea of visibility and, you know, seeing you know, how much of the population this actually affects. But this kind of makes it a vicious cycle. It definitely, you know, opened my eyes to the impacts that institutions have on not only the individual and societal level, but also for research. And it kind of cemented the idea that I don't think you can really meaningfully study economics without acknowledging these structures of power and the institutions that maintain those structures, particularly if you're doing some sort of social economics. Right. Well, we certainly agree with that. But it's interesting. So really, you've kind of brought this interest in institutions along with you. um, And it wasn't necessarily early research that influenced you. Mm -hmm. 
Because I mean, your most recent, well, actually, I don't know if it is your most recent, but your student paper for the AFDE competition, which won, was also on demographic transition and globalization and some mm-hmm. of the institutional underpinnings of that. And that actually does cite some institutionalists. But I guess I actually wondered, like, were there particular institutionalists you were interested in, like, as you went along in this research? Or was that also somewhat incidental? I think it was more incidental. Like, I don't necessarily see any particular authors that I would point to and say, like, this was really interesting, except maybe Sen. The capabilities theory was really something that was really useful to me in undergrad in particular. But other than that, I think it's just more kind of the theories that I kind of learned from along the way. And I'd say the same for probably any other school of thought that I find influential. It's less the authors themselves and more just kind of these ideas that are either from them or have resulted from like extensions of their work. I guess I'm curious. You said you grew up in the Rust Belt. Where where did Mm -hmm. you grow up? Cleveland. Okay. Do you think growing up in Cleveland in that area, did that, because I know a lot of economists in the past, you talk mm-hmm. about people like, say, Joe Stiglitz, who grew up in Gary, Indiana, mm-hmm. and he talks about how that really influenced him. Do you think that had an influence on you about how you think about things, about, you know, your thoughts today in terms of economic issues? Yeah, I do think so. Particularly kind of like I talked about earlier, you know, you drive through Ohio and you've got, you just see like all these empty factories, like, it's just like, it is so in your face. You know, people who this has had a measurable impact. Like you have like family members who their fathers, their father's fathers, they're, you know, just going on have all like worked in this field and then suddenly it's not there anymore. So now it's like, what do you do? How do we kind of redefine the economy? And like Cleveland has really leaned into healthcare as like its primary industry now with the Cleveland Clinic in particular, University Hospitals is another big healthcare system. Some really major medical schools like Case Western and John Carroll, which are really important for, you know, kind of nurturing this healthcare economy. But the problem, of course, is that manufacturing factory job is not a it's really hard to transition from that into healthcare unless you're, you know, there are, you know, things like janitorial or secretarial positions, obviously, but those are usually not going to, I guess, attract the same kinds of workers. And if, you know, Cleveland is seeing this major job growth in this particular industry, it's also seeing a particular sector that is not necessarily accessible to everyone who would be potentially looking for a job. So I think it is kind of interesting to look at, you know, how local economies in particular have been affected by, you know, these institutional and economic changes because it is so visible. You just see these like industrial ruins like everywhere you go. Right. Yeah. No, that's true. And it's interesting. Yeah. I was curious, you said you, uh, when you took AP economics in high school, Mm -hmm. what was your first impressions of economics? Was it, this is interesting, this is, I mean, obviously you stuck with it, so I had Mm -hmm. to have had some, something there, but I'm curious, were even then you started questioning it, or did this questioning of things come later in your time of studying economics? 
I was questioning it, but I was just kind of like, this is how economics is. Like, I'll take it. I'll get the AP credit. I'll never think about it again. Obviously, that is not what (laughs) happened. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, I remember taking it thinking like, I don't think that this is super realistic. I think some of these assumptions are just kind of gross. Like, I don't think that people are inherently self-interested and only want to maximize their own utility at all times. Like, I think that people are nicer than that in general. And so it didn't really mesh with my worldview at the time. And so it really kind of took more of a deeper dive into what these different schools of thought were and how you can look at economics differently and how it's more than just kind of these theories. And here's how these responses to economic events have an influence and are economic in nature as well. And so I think that there was, it was a process, but it was also like, I kind of knew from the beginning, like, I don't really agree with this stuff, like this mainstream perspective. Yeah, fair enough. So I think we're curious. I mean, Colorado State is well known as a place for institutional economics, along with mm-hmm. University of Denver, University of Tulsa, California, Fresno. A couple, you know, a number of the Western schools have been a long tradition, sometimes called the Cactus School or some other names. <laughs> but I guess we're curious. I mean, so you're studying a lot of mainstream economics, obviously. Mm-hmm. You're taking the standard classes. Do you see the institutional tradition? still at CSU, uh, do you, I guess the second question is, how do you think about this stuff when you're sitting in micro studying the the basics of neoclassical economics? I mean, are you thinking about just, okay, I got to learn this stuff or are you thinking about how do I challenge this or, you know, how, what is your perceptions on how you're Mm -hmm. going through these uh, transitional phases in your career? Yeah, I think that My perspective is kind of, you've got to know the rules before you can try to break the rules. I've said that about like grammar too. I'm like, you need to know how to use a comma, then you can use a comma however you want. (laughs) But I feel kind of similarly to these kinds of classes. Like it is, I think, important to know these mainstream ideas, not least because, you know, you want to be taken seriously even if you are working in a more heterodox tradition going forward. But I think it is really important to, you know, get to know these mainstream ideas and learn them and master them, you know, in order to be an economist. But I think that I'm more kind of concerned with just kind of learning these theories and understanding kind of ways that I can go forward and kind of challenge them, like kind of a know your enemy approach. Like, I think that a lot of these models are, you know, really interesting, but they are missing some of these key or like they have too many assumptions that I don't think really hold up. So, for example, in I took one of my elective classes was on international trade theory. And so we covered the Heckscher-Ohlin model, which is a very like standard model of international trade. But then for our midterm for the class, one of the questions was, which of these assumptions do you think is like most problematic? So kind of seeing how these models can be useful, but how they also should be extended and should be kind of addressed 
in terms of trying to change things and how to, I guess, make a better model potentially, or just acknowledging thoughtfully the shortcomings of the model is still very helpful. Do you find that in the curriculum, do you see any institutional influences at CSU right now, would you say, uh, in how maybe people teach certain subjects? Like you said, I mean, how do you think about different assumptions, for example? Mm -hmm or maybe applying, showing you different models or different approaches, or even in the types of classes offered? I mean, is it mm-hmm. is there anything noticeable in that sense? Yeah, for sure. So one thing that I really like about CSU is that the first semester of the graduate program, you take history of economic thought. So you're already introduced to all of these theorists, some of whom, you know, I've heard of, some of whom I have not, um, and kind of understanding, you know, the contributions that they all have brought in like these different schools of thought and how that influences the way that we study economics today. In addition to that, the second semester you take, I think it's called heterodox approaches to economics. And so, yeah, it's really cool. You go through kind of like a micro- segment where you look at these alternative kinds of models. There's a lot of kind of game theory and other behavioral models there. And then you go into macro. And again, it's just kind of some alternative models. I don't remember off the top of my head, but it is, I think, a really useful class because you're also, you know, at the same time, you're taking these you know, micro and macro theory classes and econometrics. And so kind of getting a different perspective. And for me, the same professor taught that heterodox approaches class as well as macro too. So, you know, you can kind of, you know, get an idea of kind of this broader perspective and you know, like this is what's kind of the accepted like industry standard of macro modeling But at the same time, there's other options here as well that paint a bit of a broader picture. That's interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this doesn't exactly build off of what you just said. I know (laughs) that's okay. Of some about some of your research, but like, what kind of stuff are you hoping to do going forward? Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of in the beginning stages of my dissertation now, which Mm -hmm. is on the relationship between globalization and population dynamics. So similar to, yeah. yeah. So similar to that paper that I submitted, the first paper I'm working on is specifically on fertility choice and trade integration in the U.S. So there was this article in the New York Times this summer about how the birth rate in the U.S. is falling, falling faster in areas with a more robust economy with greater job growth. But in rural counties and more economically depressed counties, then the decline isn't as drastic. So I'm kind of taking that a step further and looking how trade specifically impacts fertility. And one thing that I think is you know, kind of a complicating factor is the decline in American manufacturing and the lack of replacement jobs for low-skill workers. Like that's an institutional problem. I grew up in the Rust Belt. Everywhere you go, you just see these empty factories and industrial spaces because manufacturing has largely been sent overseas thanks to corporate deregulation and a major decrease in transport and information costs, making it easier and cheaper for corporations to produce somewhere else. So 
we may be having job growth in areas in the U.S., like we definitely are, but a lot of that is in more white collar job service sector, information sector, and those are not going to impact necessarily the same regions that deindustrialization has impacted. So I'm kind of interested in looking at these trade patterns, how those may impact fertility choice. We also know that, you know, the cost of living, cost of childcare has risen astronomically, which could be a deterrent to fertility choice. And so this lack of social institutions to support families with children in the U.S., like if we see that and we see kind of this economic growth, and if you feel that you have to kind of choose between having a job, having a career and having children, then that can be another institutional factor. And so I just think that there's kind of a lot there that really does emphasize the institutional nature. And I'm always trying to, you know, show the power structures in play and show kind of the bigger picture. And so that's kind of what I'm working on now. And I think there's a lot there to get a really rich analysis, although I'm still working on the data cleaning and all that yet. So don't have any results yet to point to. Are you using a particular model though, or have you not? I'm not quite there yet. Like I said, these data sets that I'm using are huge and unwieldy. So it's, I've just been cleaning data for months now, but it'll get through it. (laughs) So you're uh, actually the Association for Evolutionary Economic Social Media Coordinator. And we were kind of curious how you ended up in that role and as you take on that role, what is your goals or objectives to kind of help the association in that social media space? Yeah, so I was actually recommended to this by Stephen Pressman, who taught my history of economic thought class in my first year. I had never heard of AFI before then, but I you know, checked out the website, read the about page. I was like, this sounds interesting. So I was hired and basically was told, we have a Facebook page. That's about it. We'd like a blog, maybe Twitter, go for it. So the first couple of months of that, I just, you know, was spent getting everything set up. So I think that my goals are mostly to kind of get the word out by highlighting members' work. So I recently posted about Charles Whalen's new book. So that was an example of something. Um, I'll have people kind of submit some things that they're working on. I have like a Google form that I send out periodically. I think uh, I also uploaded the recordings from last year's ASSA sessions and posted them. I think Twitter is generally probably the most useful way to get the word out. So I try to use hashtags like the econ Twitter or AFI and tag relevant accounts. So, you know, my audience is pretty small, but I think it is slowly but surely getting a little bigger. Had you heard of other associations for institutional econ? Not until I got involved with AFI. Okay. It's just, it's interesting because we're, we're always interested in how institutional economics can kind of reach young scholars. Mm-hmm. And you obviously have been interested in it for a while. Mm-hmm. So it is, a, it is a bit unfortunate that apparently some of those organizations hadn't kind of been apparent to you. Yeah. It's obviously a little bit of a problem. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on like why that might be? Do you think uh, most uh, young scholars are just too busy to really, you know, find like niche 
sub-disciplines like institutional economics and attend those groups? Maybe. I think maybe one issue is that there are just so many organizations that, and there's, I mean, at least not that I've found, maybe there is one, but there's not really a list out there of like, here's all of the organizations. If there is one, that would be great, but I can't find it, which in itself is maybe an issue. (laughs) But I think just kind of knowing what's out there, because I think, I think that most people just kind of learn about it from word of mouth. Like, I mean, my advisor, Alyssa Bronstein, obviously has said, you know, introduced me to IAFI. There's various other ones that I just know about, like, like AFIT, obviously, Association for Social Economics. So, but these are all things that like, I've just kind of heard about during my course of graduate studies. Like it was never something that was mentioned at the undergrad level that there were these organizations. So I think it's just kind of hearing from other people that this is mm-hmm. a thing that exists. Well, ignoring the fact that most people don't seem to be super aware of uh, the organizations. I mean, do you mm-hmm. think IE is still pretty attractive to young people? I think so. It's kind of hard to answer that. I feel like the only young economists I know are like also in my grad program and (laughs) also tend to (laughs) think similarly to me about it. And so I think that most of us in our, in my grad program would consider ourselves institutionalists of some form. But I think that greater awareness of institutionalism could potentially get more progressive thinkers into economics. Like, again, you know, this issue of awareness is the issue. But I think that, you know, I think a lot of more progressive thinkers might sit in an economics class and think like, well, I don't like this whole talk about people only caring for their own self-interest and constant profit maximizing. This does not appeal to me. And so we kind of end up with this like self-reinforcing, more conservative field because the people who like that worldview, who stick with it, who keep things the way that they are. So I think that building that awareness of institutionalism and other schools of thought, like early on in those principles classes, undergraduate theory classes, even like high school, if we can get into like the AP curriculum or something, then I think that those are important avenues to just kind of introduce thinkers to the idea. Because I think that institutionalism in general is a popular idea. I think like over this last year in particular, we've seen so much talk about institutions just kind of in the mainstream, like whether it's COVID-19 showing the institutional failings of the U.S. and our like social welfare system. We also saw like last summer's protests about police brutality. Like that's when people started talking about institutional racism in kind of the broader parlance. And we have this current wave of labor protests, which hopefully, you know, keeps going. But we're kind of starting to see this, that people are kind of fed up with the way things are and are kind of understanding that these institutions are more of what needs to change. And so I think that if, you know, people were more aware that there is this school of thought of institutional economics, I think it could really be appealing to a lot of people who maybe are just not interested in economics at all. 
So you definitely don't mind that institutional economics like label no. applied to yourself. <laughs> no, I don't see that as a negative, partially because I'm just like, this is the work that I do. This is what I like to do. If you're put off by it, you're not going to like, I'm not going to want to work with you anyway, like that kind of thing. <laughs> so I think, you know, I'm, I could see maybe people who are going for like more like, like prestigious or like more mainstream, like economics just in general might want to minimize that if they are into it. But I think, I don't think that that's a drawback like for me. And I think for a lot of my peers who, again, mostly also on the same page as me, but you know, it's a small but mighty group. Well, thanks, Emily. We really appreciate your time today. Again, you're listening to the Legal Economic Nexus podcast. Thank you. All right. Thanks for having me.